The Forward Thinking CFO podcast is brought to you by the team at Nemeritus, your financial modeling partner. We're trusted modeling advisors to global leaders, ranging from FTSE 100 corporations to major infrastructure providers to fund managers with billions under management. But we're more than just modelers. Our team are true experts who understand your business and create solutions to help you overcome your challenges and give you the confidence you need to make your critical business decisions. To find out more about how we can help you solve your toughest business challenges, please visit our website at emeritus.co.uk. In today's episode, I speak to Rob Haxton, a board-level group finance director currently working at Blast TV. Rob's career is about as varied as they come, and he's always kept an eye on his CV with his career moves, making sure he builds on his experience and becomes as well-rounded as possible. As he points out, being a great CFO means understanding the whole business, not just your own area of expertise. With such a successful career in so many areas of the entertainment and publishing sector, Rob has amassed a wealth of expert knowledge. In today's episode, we discuss how it pays to be prudent when working on a budget, figuring that one awkward meeting at the beginning of the year, followed by 11 good ones where you've over-delivered, is preferable to the other way around. How working for smaller companies is often more rewarding than working at larger ones because you can see firsthand the impact of your decisions on the business. And how becoming a great CFO requires you to be an expert communicator with all departments across the business. It was so great talking to Rob and finding out more about his experiences and the challenges he's faced along the way, whether you're just at the start of your finance career or a CFO yourself. Today's episode will give you a lingering snapshot of what a varied and successful career in finance can look like. So welcome, Rob Haxton, to the Forward Thinking CFO podcast. Good to have you on. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, Looking forward to it. Good, good. So uh, this being the Forward Thinking CFO podcast, uh, what we like to do is just to to get a little idea of, of, of your background at the beginning. If you could just walk us through sort of highlights of your career or key moments maybe key decision points, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, give us an idea of what, what are the key stepping stones along the way. Okay. So I, le- I left university and I kind of knew I wanted to become a, an accountant or somebody working in finance. And I joined Arthur Anderson back in, uh, that was late 1980s, early 1990s, and met a variety of clients, uh, went down the, the chartered route, and realized I didn't like auditing. It just wasn't for me. I liked being in business. I liked being on the client side of having discussions with clients. And I didn't get through PE1. And that was partly because I just wasn't into the auditing background and also the way in which the exams were structured. And at the time, Hertz, which were a client of mine, Arthur Anderson, they offered me a job to join them when they knew that I was leaving Arthur Anderson. And joined her to rent a car, went down the SEMA route. And it was much more for me being part of industry and being part of a decision-making process at a relatively junior level back then was something that I really enjoyed. And then one day I had a mail shot from, I think it was Robert Walters or maybe Michael Page or one of the the big search firms for a role in Polygram as a management accountant. And it was something that is clearly appealing to an awful lot of people. Working in a record business is something that is attractive from the outside in, but also being in the industry was fantastic. And I went along for the interview, 
and was successful in that role and met a gentleman called Martin Stewart, who I'll refer to in a minute. But working in a record company was everything that I wanted from a role. It was dynamic. It was involved with a lot of different departments, legal, artists and repertoire, marketing, sales. Having exposure to the management team in Polygram was great. And also the life outside of records was all about being part of that industry. And it was a fantastic part of my life. I sailed through the exams, fortunately, and did, did well in those exams. And then Martin Stewart, who I referred to earlier, he then left to join B Sky B, British Sky Broadcasting, and still in touch with him. And at the time, he was keen to bring me on board to join B Sky B, and I did leave Polygram after about five years to go and join B Sky B. And it was a fantastic time to join. Uh, it, was, it was growth. It was all about how can we be the biggest and the best. And it was a very exciting, innovative place to be within B Sky B. And I thoroughly enjoyed my time there. But one thing that I was very conscious of from a CV point of view was having building blocks and stepping stones, just making sure that I ticked off certain boxes from a CV point of view with the intention of becoming a well-rounded finance person. And one particular aspect that I, I wanted to get on my CV was working in different cultures, working across multi-territories, uh, and that would involve working in a much bigger company and having that exposure within a company that's got a European remit. And that came across when I joined JWT, I was the European financial controller for JWT, dealing with all a lot of the European countries, visiting the countries on a regular basis, being involved with the M&A aspect uh, that WPP were involved with. WPP is a very acquisitive company, and I was dealing with and being involved with many acquisitions across the territories. But again, one thing that I, I missed was being having ownership of a business unit because whilst being a European FC sounds very great fundamentally just flying on a Monday you're there working with the local financial controller local finance director who knew everything the ins and outs of the company they're involved in all the decision making and they're pivotal and a key person within that particular region and that's what I missed and I wanted to get back into that and the only way you can do that is by going into business going back into a business role and I did that. I went back into a company called Haymarket, which was a publishing company, privately owned by Michael Hesseltine, which had a great portfolio of, of magazines. And I was the uh, divisional financial controller for one of the, the, it was business publications and consumer publications. And I headed up the business publication side of the business. And I absolutely loved it. It was a case of having ownership, not only to Michael Hesseltine and the board, but also being involved in decision-making across multiple people. It could be an editor, it could be the publishing, it could be uh, working with the suppliers over the printing and press costs, etc. Very wide remit. And I enjoyed my time there. And I was approached then to leave and join Sony Pictures Entertainment, which, again, was a flagship brand company that everyone is familiar with. And I joined there to be involved with Sony Pictures Television Distribution, which deals with all the broadcasters and basically takes the output and pipeline from Sony Studio and monetizes that. So, for example, we had deals with uh, B-Sky B, with Proceban, with all the, all the major broadcasters across the region. And I had a great time, very good exposure, traveled quite a lot, not only to Culver City, but also across uh, the European markets with the distribution team. But it, it 
it was a great role to have, but also a relatively easy one to have because the Sony content was great. You know, that when you've got when you've got a James Bond franchise, everybody wants that, and then it becomes a bidding war. When you've got the Spider Man franchise, it's a quite an easy concept to have and to sell. And I enjoyed my time there, but I realised again, getting back to the stepping stone point that I made earlier, uh, one thing that I didn't have in my CV, which I knew I needed to have, was doing an exit. And an exit can be either doing a flotation or doing a private equity exit or something or some transaction experience because that, that to me, is almost like the pinnacle of do, doing a finance role is taking a company, getting it in a state ready to exit. And the exit can take many forms, I've just mentioned. And I, I wanted to have that. And the only way you can have that is by moving to a smaller company. You, I, there's no way on earth that, for example, Sony, you could do an exit with Sony. You just can't. I mean, it's never going to happen. It's already done. So the only way you can do that is take the skill sets that, that I've picked up by having these stepping stones on my CV, taking it into a smaller company. I then moved into a company. It was still in the in entertainment world. It was, the, it was called In-Flight Productions. And we dealt with all the all the airlines across the world and we basically sold in the entertainment on board planes, be it radio, be it films, and provided the entertainment. So I was still dealing with all the studios in America. I was dealing with the airlines, uh, negotiating contracts. And when I was there, I then moved into a managing director role before I left, which was a great stepping stone for me because I then suddenly realized what I needed for my finance team. And it it was very evident to me that you need a really strong finance person to support the managing director because the, the remit of an MD is fundamentally different to a finance director. But it, it really helped me understand what sort of team I would need from a finance function if I was the managing director. But equally, it then helped me realise what I needed to be to be a successful FD to support the managing director of a company. So that, that was a great learning experience for me. We were then taken over by a company called Par Capital, which was a SPAC in America, and they, they took over in-flight productions, and that became Global Eagle Entertainment. And as part of the restructuring back in, that would have been 2015, 16, there was a restructure, and I was going to leave. And I then I was then looking for my next role. Just before you go on there, Rob, for those who don't know what a SPAC is, could you just give us a little explanation? Of yeah, it's, it's a special purpose acquisition company that's set up with funding and the objective is to invest those funds into certain sectors. And the, the SPAC that we had, the sector was entertainment, which is such a wide reaching remit. It, it covers a myriad of, in, of sectors and it was set up by a couple of gentlemen in America, Jeff Zaganski and a, another gentleman named Escapes, who were fantastically well contacted in the US entertainment business, set up a SPAC. And then from that, Global Legal Entertainment was formed. And then that then went and acquired numerous companies, of which we were one in flight production. Yeah. I think it's, it's a, a much more common thing in the States and, and perhaps, you know, beginning to be more common here. But uh, I think it's been uh, quite a feature in the States for, for some time. But. Um, yeah, no, UK what listeners I, might not be so familiar with it. Yeah. And what, what I'd say about the SPAC is, is it's their ethos and culture is very ruthless. Business culture is results driven because they want to make a return for their for their stakeholders. Clearly, 
And it, it's a very it's interesting to go through the process because, again, you get to see what their decision-making process is all about and what, what drives their decision-making. It was a good time to be there. But, and I say one that they went through a restructure and then I was fortunate to leave that company and then join another company entertainment in the entertainment sector, which was Catalyst Limited. And I was able to bring a whole suite of skills to that company, be it um, acquisitions, be it investor relations, be it private equity background, working with various different boards to the company. And I was attracted to the company at the time, partly because they were on an exit plan, which is something I alluded to earlier. That was something that I didn't have on my CV that I wanted to have on my CV. And I know that all my friends and colleagues, they all want to do an exit. They're trying to do an exit. But the actual percentage of companies actually successfully get it away is incredibly small. There's so much luck involved. But equally, you have to pick the right horse to do an exit. And I just got on really well with a chief exec gentleman called Dominic Wheatley, who is an, a legend in the gaming sector. Got on well with him. I realized this is a, it's a business. It's a well-formed business that was going to do well. Uh, gaming, as we know in the, in the entertainment world, is, is just going through exponential growth. It's a very attractive sector to be in. But also it had two lines of business. We had the, a QA, quality assurance side of the business, which was a very stable part of the business, not in a boring way, but in a, a cash generative way. It was generating positive cash, had a great suite of clients dealing with all the major publishers. And it grew up to now, I think it's got about a thousand people in Warsaw testing games on behalf of publishers. So it's a very attractive, stable part of the business. And then the other part of the business was a company they acquired called Curve Digital Games, which was Dom's sweet spot. Uh, that, that's a sector that, that he loves. But Similar to record, the record business where you would have a portfolio of, say, 10 artists of which one does incredibly well and nine and five or six break even and the other three or four are loss leaders as part of a portfolio. That's very similar to the gaming sector. You, know, you have one game that absolutely takes off and does incredibly well. You have a out of a portfolio of 10, you may have six or seven that do okay, generate returns that are expected, and then you have two or three that don't do as well as expected, but can be supported by and cross-subsidized by the other game or games that have done incredibly well. So it's having that access to that portfolio. And then I met the team and absolutely loved my time there. It's, it's private equity owned. And we did have some shareholders in Germany, but they're, they're, they're relatively quiet. But again, they wanted to do an exit. And luckily for me, I was heavily involved in that process in 2018. And then 2019 October 2019 we concluded a deal yeah no that's uh was uh, I know you it was quite a lot of work went into that we were dealing with you at that time well yeah one, one of the key things that we needed was having good quality MI I that, that I can't underestimate uh, underemphasize how important that is to any process not only particularly for a transaction but also day-to-day business but one of the things that we didn't have in place was having robust management information, either historical or forecasting or going forward. And that's what was needed to be successful. And I know from experience that an investment committee, when they look at a potential target, if they don't get comfortable that the target company has got good MI that is complete and accurate with integrity, then sometimes they will say no to a potential investment because of that fundamental 
weakness in a, in a company and we got you you on board you and the team on board and you're instrumental and key in helping get that over the line yeah no indeed uh, there was a story i remember from that time you were telling me about a particular game called human fall flat is that what it's called it, it is called human fall flat that's a case in point of what you what you were just talking about well, absolutely. If I just expand on that, so that is the one outlier game that when when all the moons align and and things take off, then it really takes off. And up until uh, when was it seventy end of two thousand seventeen, maybe the game was released and it was just ticking over. And then it was picked up by an influencer in, in Asia Pack, and then literally overnight it exploded for us. It just had like half a million downloads a day. It was game-changing and also life-changing for me personally here now because it not only changed the company in terms of the finances, but also it allowed us to then engage in an exit process that we may not have otherwise been able to if we'd have just had a portfolio of investments that were capital-hungry. You know, each game back then would have needed 2 to $4 million of investment, so it was the capital allocation and risk was quite high. A series of games that hadn't really performed very well but now it was transformed. We had a game that was flying. It's still one of it's still the best selling title now in 2021. So four or five years after it was released, and it just showed the importance of how one particular game or franchise can be key to getting a process away, and also it allowed us to then embark on an exit, which ultimately proved successful. Without that game, we would not have exited. Yeah. So in your sort of day to day activity. Uh, running a business like that where you know anything that's in the creative industry with films music or games they all seem to have this uh this sort of feature if you like behavior that uh you, you never really know if each individual title is going to be a winner or not or just just okay H- how does that influence the way you as cfo do things like your budgeting and you know financial planning and so on do you do you kind of work on the basis of those common denominator or you, you presumably don't assume that you're going to get a winner does it does it influence that compared to what other businesses might be doing does it influence i i think that from a forecasting point of view in these sort of industries you always got to be relatively prudent because you can't as you say you can't budget for an outlier a game that, that does incredibly well and but that isn't to say the budget shouldn't be challenging and a stretch for the companies. But what I always tend to do is to work a budget on the worst case is too strong a word, but on a way that is everybody knows is prudent. And I would rather have upside and deliver on upside and report on upside rather than having continual downside. So I'm I always pressure test and challenge the key stakeholders to make sure that they're happy, the numbers they're putting forward are prudent and deliverable, not to the point where they always build in a a huge amount of headroom and consistently over-deliver, but are realistic in application and execution. Because, again, I've I've learned this from experience, I'd rather have one awkward meeting at the beginning of a board, at the beginning of a calendar year, for example, where you set the budgets and then 11 good ones where you over-deliver, rather than having... 11 bad ones of consistently under-reporting. And then uh, it, it just it helps set the scene. But how can you improve the forecasting process? By, by making sure 
the decision points around, for example, a video game, you've pressure tested it. So, for example, is the price point correct? How do you know that in the marketplace that price point of $15.99 or $24.99 is A, comparable to other similar products, but B, ones, ones that consumer will pay? Is the sales forecast in terms of the number of units? Again, is that realistic? Is in the marketplace, is that over the top or is it, is it way too under, undercooked? Is it something that we can deliver on? Do we have the marketing in place to deliver on that and execute that plan? So it's understanding the operational points that make a game or a film or record or whatever. Are they, how do we make it successful? And are there decision-making processes in place for each relevant point? Have they been made and is that robust? You know, one of the things, picking up on what you said earlier about your time as an MD and how that gave you a, you know, a really good understanding of what an MD needs from the finance function. I guess that's the kind of thing you're talking about there. I'd be interested to hear more about what, what sort of things you think that is. But one, one there is you mentioned kind of getting into the business and, and understanding, you know, uh, or sort of getting involved with the forecasting around sales and pricing and, and those sorts of things. Is, is that, you know, the key things? What What is it that an MD really wants from a from a finance department? I, th- I, th- I think to be one step ahead, to always think about the next question. And, and it, that's, it's very difficult to say what an MD wants other than to always, when I used to present information to the MD when I then became MD, it's, to me what has happened in the month or year to date is almost, it's not an irrelevance, but equal, for me it's about where are we heading towards the end of the year. And I, w- I would always want to know, is there any risk around the full year forecast? What, what operationally is a challenge ahead? Are there any pressure points? Is there, are, is there any upside in terms of client deal negotiations? What are the salient points? Because I, I would get rung up from Emirates or Gulf Air or Qatar or Thai Airways. And I would need to know what are the operational points in, in consideration at the moment? Is it, for example, a film not being delivered? Or is there a price negotiation coming up? Is there an RFP coming up that we need to engage with? And also, the most important thing I found was having information that's presented in a way that on one page, I can get all the information that I need from the business. And that is quite a difficult thing to do, to boil it all down in one page, just so that I can then walk away or could walk away looking at this one page. What's happening with revenue? What's the LTM on revenue or EBITDA? Where are we from a cash flow point of view? Have we won contracts? Have we lost contracts? What's our current headcount? Just so that I can get a very quick snapshot of the business at a particular time, but also on a forward look basis, what is coming around the corner that I need to be aware of? And that, to me, to be a well-rounded FD, you have to be on, t- on top of so many different points across the business, backward-looking, forward-looking state as is, but boiling it down on one piece of paper is quite a hard thing to do because it forces you to go through the business and pick out the relevant KPIs that are pertinent to that particular business. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's great advice. Thanks. Throughout your career, you've been involved in companies that have been bought and sold, and then ultimately with this exit. And I think you've done a couple of a uh, couple of other sort of projects since your time at Catalis. Again, involved with deals and. With different ownership as well, with with uh, a listed business, with private equity owned, and and also this spec, be interesting to hear a bit about you know what what are the the features of the different ownership, and also what it's like trying to prepare for a deal, you know anything like that. We'll, we'll come on to some of that a 
uh, a little bit more in detail in a minute because I think um, when you were selling, I think it was Catalis, you, you were talking about a road show and, and that was a big deal to, or, you know, <laughs> a lot of a lot of work. So, yeah, interested to hear about all that sort of thing. Yeah, so, so when I, when I, we'll come to Catalis in a minute, but when I left Catalis, as part of the process, we had a company advising the management team of which I was one on the exit and that advice focused primarily on maximizing the exit position for us as individuals and when I exited Catalis back in when was it February 20 I was still in touch with a, the company that advised us and as happens the CFO typically leaves because the incoming PE company will either have their own finance director on board they want to bring on board but also it's an opportune moment for the finance person to leave that's just part and parcel of being involved in the exit and being part and part of having equity and I was going to take some time off and anyway as part of that the company was involved in another acquisition that involved WPP and a company called Two Circles and their CFO was going to leave and the incumbent FD was going to go on maternity leave and the gentleman that I dealt with said, well, Rob, would you consider going over to help the newly helped two circles and the, new, the newly acquired PE company that's come on board, which was based in America, a company called Bruin Sports Capital, to help while the FD was on maternity leave. And basically to shore up the reporting, to deal with the board relationship and get the monthly management accounts and reporting to the board and get everything aligned whilst there's basically no senior finance person and I said yes I mean this is just before lockdown as well so rather than being at home and being annoying around the house I was able to sit in my garage and 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 work and with two circles and I absolutely loved my time there the management team at two circles were great the brewing sports capital were fantastic to deal with and it was a great time I was able to come on board I understood and understand what a board would want on a monthly basis but from a forward look planning point of view and when Becky came back, they then brought Becky back on board, the uh, the girl on maternity leave. And then I was then kind of thinking, well, shall I take some more time out or what do I do? And as luck would have it, uh, one of my contacts in the recruitment world rang me up and said there was this role uh, that I'm currently at. They want to do an exit. They have a a defined plan to make that exit work. But the CFO has just left would I consider the role? And I went along for the interview, met the chief exec and the board as well. And I'm currently at the esports gaming company called Blast. But in terms of ownership structures, it's varied so much, really has. It's, got, it's gone from being rather US-driven, hard culture that's a SPAC, that just goes with the territory, to a current situation where the board are predominantly Danish. They are fantastic to deal with very strategic, very supportive of the business. But in, and in terms of board compositions, that's varied enormously as well. I've, got, I've had board compositions that are made up of a great balance of people. It could be CEOs, marketing, operation-type people. But on the other side of the, the fence, I've, I've been on boards that are all made up of accountants, and that is such a fundamentally different board experience to the, the ones that I've had that have been really good fun. The board that's made up of all accountants is just... Uh, it's like having an exam every single month. Yeah, uh, uh, I don't think others that we've spoken to have really commented on the uh, 
constitution of the board and, and different types of characters you get on there. But I can see, absolutely see how that makes a huge difference. Um, oh, a m- massive difference. And I, and I hadn't really appreciated it until going through various various boards. And for me, it would be a key question now when joining a company, and indeed it was where I am now, what is the composition of the board and what is their level of support and, and what is the level of involvement from a finance point of view in the board meetings? Because going from one extreme where literally it was turning the pages, going through 0.1% difference in gross profit margin. I mean, at a granular scale, it just did not help the strategy of the company whatsoever. To the other position where we are now, where it's all about the exit, the valuation, the strategy, you know, growing the business. And that's a fundamentally different conversation and contribution from the finance person for myself, because then it becomes about the, the COO, the chief exec, the marketing person, the chief growth officer, all coming on board to align to get this exit rather than just being fixated in you know, what's happened with working capital this month. Uh, that does not help grow a company. Yeah, we talked just briefly now about Catalis and, and the, the roadshow. And, and yeah, I think you, you did tell me a story. It'd be, be useful to hear that again. Uh, it sounded pretty gruelling. It, it was a very intense period of my life, partly because... In the build-up to the due diligence process, dealing with the, the nomad, the nominated advisors, the sole focus revolves around the IM deck, the investment Man- memorandum deck and HFI, historical financial information, and that's all financial. It just is. That just goes with the territory. And because of the focus and the intensity, the CFO role, FD role, that becomes critical in the process. You're dealing with multiple people, be it the lawyers, be it the transaction team, at your auditors, be it the nomads, the board it all culminates and bottlenecks through the finance person. But the culmination of that is we, the intention was to go on the road and do an aim listing. And as part of that, that we had to go on the road show and it was brutal. Absolutely brutal. We had 65 odd meetings in the space of two weeks being driven around the city, going, sit in front of fund managers, 45 minutes, right. Next meeting, next meeting, next meeting, starting from eight in the morning till six at night. And it was such a brutal process. But I have to say, the great thing now is having gone through that process, A, I wouldn't do a name listing again, I'd always do a PE route, but also I know what to do. I would know how to do it. I'd know how to manage the process. And in a fundamentally different mindset to if we had to do it it again, I, I can't underestimate how beneficial it's been going through that process because going into it cold, I would be really daunted by the whole process but going into it now not that it's water off a duck's back but it's something that i'd be a lot more comfortable with in in preparing for and executing on yeah so you've had experience in large and small companies now and is, is there anything fundamentally different you think about the the nature of working in those in, in a finance role massively i would say that being involved in a small company is more rewarding in terms of job satisfaction and uh, in a number of ways, you can see your decision. You can see how you impact a business. If you make a decision today, you can see it being being impacted tomorrow. In a big company, that's never going to happen, or very rarely is it going to happen. And the the titles in a big corporate company are great: senior vice president, senior executive vice president, executive senior vice. I mean, the the raft of titles is huge, but. The ability to actually make a decision and see it through and impact the business is far more limited. It just is. It's just a reality. In a small company, you have to be nimble, proactive, and make decisions. Whereas a big company, 
that it often isn't the case because it, a the decision making process is a lot longer. There are more people involved in the process. But I have to say, going from a large company to a small company is far easier than trying to go from a small company into a big company. But I think once you've made the transition and you go from large to small, then it'd be very difficult to reverse that. But also, I, I think I benefited because I joined big companies when I first started out because they were able to, they had resourcing graduates, a lot more headcount, etc. And having that big corporate mentality, I think, it's always been a positive because I've always taken on board the learnings that I had and I've always kind of instilled that into my team. So think blue chip, you know, how, how can we do this from a, a blue chip point of view? What would Sky, how would they want their reporting? Because the reporting in these big companies is very good. Right? It just is. And so I've always taken that on board from a reporting point of view, getting things right. So for example, even basic stuff like I, I would do the... MI reporting in millions, even though it may be one or two million as opposed to 20, 30 million, it just gives clarity of presentation and being able to explain it rather than presenting stuff to the nearest pound. It just looks busy, noisy, people focusing on the detail. Rather, it just makes for a better MI deck. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for that. I guess there's a lot of people listening to our podcast who aim to be a CFO one day or are working towards that. What are the kind of top three things you would say that they should be trying to do to, to get them on the right path for that? Oh, top three things. Uh, certainly knowing the business very well, by which I mean understand the business levers in, in, in the company. Is it, you really have to understand where is the value coming from, first and foremost. Is it from uh, better marketing campaigns? Is it uh, re- the revenue streams, all revenue streams, making a profit, for example, but understanding the value levers within a company. Business partnering with other stakeholders, non-finance stakeholders is key. Uh, you have to be able to communicate and articulate with the non-finance part of a company, be it the legal team, be it the marketing team, be it the sales team, always trying to assist and help their, their side of the business and understanding what they need. That, to me, is key, being able to listen to what is needed from each department means that often you have to be quite a bit of a chameleon and legal being able to talk differently to marketing but you have to be integral to the business as part of any company and then also i think to be a a, a cfo to be a trusted business partner but the finance world you can't be the the crazy jazz hands creative type of guy you have to be that professional mature and outlook person that is a, a trusted partner for a ceo or a coo we're just kind of coming out of the COVID restrictions now. That Those have been lifted as we record this. Life is seeming to get back to normal unless some of the tragedy befalls us, you know, in another variant or something. So that's kind of there's a lot of change that's gone on, I think, during the COVID period in terms of how we think about where we work and that sort of thing. Looking at your role as CFO and, and what other CFOs may be thinking about now, what do you think are the important things to be focusing on over the next sort of six months or so, six, 12 months? And, and how can you see things changing over the slightly longer time horizon, the sort of five years? I think, well, for, for me at the moment, it's all about cash generation. We're in a growth phase of the company in a, in a good growing sector, but we have to be free cash flow positive. And for me, that involves focusing on suppliers, negotiating with clients, et cetera, maximizing deals that we have in place but also 
growing the company via acquisition. We're looking at a number of acquisitions to grow the company. And also, from a board point of view, that the board wants an exit. So I have to position this company to get it in a place where it's ready to exit. We're not there yet. But how do we get it ready for exit? By making sure that our long-term forecasts are accurate, hence why we're looking to use yourself again to improve the MI, because I need to know on a forward-look basis when is the appropriate time to look to exit. Or it could be when in 12 months' time or six months' time, what's my cash position going to look like? I have to know now so that I can plan accordingly. So in terms of what my focus is now, I, I tend to look at things on an LTM basis so I can see what the horizon is bringing me in six to 12 months' time from a cash point of view, from a revenue point of view, and understand the pinch points. I don't want to go to the board with a problem today that needs to be resolved tomorrow. I, I would rather go to the board now with a problem that's coming up in six months' time. So my focus is on getting the MI and the forward look reporting for the business sorted on a 12-month basis as a minimum. That is my initial focus at as of today sure okay well rob that's great advice for listeners whether they're working towards becoming a cfo whether they're already a cfo i think there's some some really interesting stuff there it's been great to hear your experiences and uh thanks very much for coming on the podcast it's been great to have you on pleasure we're keen to hear your thoughts on this episode so please do get in touch at info at numeritas.co.uk and if you'd like to find out more about Rob, then you can check out his LinkedIn profile. There'll be a link to that in the show notes. And if you'd like to find out more about Blast TV, you'll find a link to their website in the show notes. The Forward Thinking CFO podcast is brought to you by the team at Nemeritus, your financial modeling partner. We're trusted modeling advisors to global leaders, ranging from FTSE 100 corporations to major infrastructure providers to fund managers with billions under management. But we're more than just modelers. Our team are true experts who understand your business and create solutions to help you overcome your challenges and give you the confidence you need to make your critical business decisions. To find out more about how we can help you solve your toughest business challenges, please visit our website at emeritus.co.uk.